Hello and welcome to Original Sound Chat, where video game music is a work of art. On each episode, it's our goal to help you learn about two soundtracks from the world of games, as well as the people, stories, and critical tracks behind them. My name is Joey Vader. And I'm Peter Spasia. We're brought to you by Anonymous Dinosaur and Rhymes with Asia. It's time to appreciate great OSTs and the games they come from without getting too bogged down in music theory. Up first this week for our two games is 2010's Red Dead Redemption, the game that took the open-world formula of Grand Theft Auto and applied it to the Wild West frontier. After that, it's 2004's Sly 2 Band of Thieves, a sequel that completely changed the format of the series and let players take part in intricate heists. So, it may seem like an unusual pairing of games, I will say. But it's a pretty easy theme this week. Uh, You know, when we throw these games together and try to find a theme, it's easy to say, oh, Gangs of Outlaws for Red Dead Redemption and for Sly 2. So This is probably the easiest one we've had in weeks. (laughs) Kind of surprising (laughs) on that front. Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty all right. Been uh, very busy, though. Uh, What with other... Other podcasts, schoolwork, and work work, and it's been a lot, but hey, we're here. The holiday season cannot come here soon enough. Uh, I have my cough returning with a vengeance, and through the power of editing, you haven't noticed for like the past four weeks, but (laughs) it got better, and then now it's not, so I'm struggling but hanging in there. So it should be a fun episode uh, this week, maybe a little shorter than usual i feel like you know we're we're kind of crunching on this one there's not as much information available but we'll Mm -hmm. still try to deliver a a fun educational experience for you all filled with music but first we got to touch up on the composers that we've been following throughout the course of the show and what have they been doing with their careers uh in the past week's headlines it's some composer follow-up news persona 5 the royal is out now in japan And, you know, people have been studying live streams and things like that. But most importantly, on a music front, it means more music from Shoji Meguro. And so, music from him. uh, I don't think Lotus Juice is on any of them, but I've seen some credits with them. But anyway, it's mostly uh, Shoji Meguro. And uh, the music's out there. If you want to check it out on YouTube, uh, here's a sample of one of the best songs. I haven't had a chance to listen to any of it yet. I do know that uh, I I didn't watch any of this stream, but there was a man named Tim Barry, who is now my hero, uh, who has already finished the game. <laughs> and at time of recording, he finished it yesterday, 19, finished it in about 46 hours. <laughs> it must be nice to be 19 years old to do that with your life. I wish I had that kind of time. I mean, but that, that, that poor guy, resting it off, sleeping it off. Uh, but yeah, that's going to be my personal soundtrack for the next several months. So thank you, Shoji Meguro. In other news, Toby Fox, continuing to have the best year ever, uh, has announced that he did indeed compose a song for Pokemon Sword and Shield. I don't believe we know what song it is. We haven't heard it Mm-mm. yet. 
but he uh, he has said that he composed a song for a Pokemon game. So boy, he keeps coming up. <laughs> Makes sense with the Game Freak connections after you know Little Town story, mm-hmm. uh, Little Town Hero. I can't even remember what that game's called. Little Town Hero. Little Town Hero. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you know, Toby Fox is just out there living his best life. So there you go. And finally, Michiru Yamane uh, is putting on a Bloodstained Ritual of the Night-themed concert uh, in Japan on November 10th, uh, specifically in Minamiyama, Japan. Minamiyama, Japan. Yeah, I I was reading the outline and was like, boy, I'm sure glad that's number three, so (laughs) Peter has to read that name. Uh, But she's putting this on with her sister. I guess they have like a, a duet sort of pair group between the two of them as well as uh, along with a string quartet so if you're in japan in minamiyama <laughs> and you want to check out a bloodstained themed concert with michiru yamane there you go i would love to go to that i'm not in japan or in mini mouse um <laughs> i'm not gonna try and say it because i'm gonna no no just screw it let's do this minamiyama yeah I think yeah, I think yeah, that's probably yeah, right. Nice, nice job. Yeah, there you go. Anime, you haven't failed me yet. Alright. Well, let's talk about the first of our two games this week, and I'll be talking about Red Dead Redemption. I was tempted to actually first talk about Red Dead Redemption 2. I think that was going to be the original plan. Because mm-hmm. that makes sense with today in particular. And it's you know, that's also a great soundtrack. It really is. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, you know what? I've actually beaten Red Dead Redemption. I feel like I can speak to that game a little better than I can its sequel. And fortunately, the same composer worked on the game. Not in a full capacity, you know, composed with someone else for this game. But it all ties together nicely. So when we're talking about the original Red Dead Redemption, we have to go back to the game Red Dead Revolver. Because everyone's just like, you know, oh, Red Dead 2 is, you know, Red Dead Redemption 2. Like, well, it's it's technically Red Dead 3 because Red Dead Revolver is the first game in the Red Dead series. And it has a very interesting history that I learned, I know, for the first time. Red Dead Revolver, it's a game that started development under Angel Studios in 2000. And I think it's Angel Studios because apparently, like, the company. Well, started in like 1984, but actually, I think the founder was like Diego Angel. You know, like the whole, you know, how it's like, oh, it's Angel with a name like Diego, it's probably Angel. But anyway, Angel Studios, as we know them, development started on this game in 2000, and there was like publishing support from Capcom. Uh, they wanted to make it like this Wild West arcade shooter that was intended to be a spiritual successor to 1985's Gunsmoke. But in November 2002, Take-Two Interactive, which is the video game holding company for both Rockstar Games and 2K Games, Take-Two announced that they had acquired Angel Studios and they renamed them Rockstar San Diego. Uh, After this, Capcom canceled Red Dead Revolver, but then Rockstar acquired the IP rights, they picked it back up, they finished the game, publishing it on PlayStation 2 and Xbox on May 4th, 2004. Development on a sequel began shortly thereafter, 
in 2005. And that brings us to Red Dead Redemption, which was released on May 18th, 2010 in North America for Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. PAL Regions got the game on May 21st of that year, so only a few days later. Uh, the easiest way I would say to play the game today, if you never have, uh, is to get an Xbox 360 version of the game and play it through backwards compatibility on Xbox One. Because this is one of the very few Rockstar games that is not available on PC. You'd think that would be the easiest way to play it, but no Red Dead Redemption on PC. The game is developed by Rockstar San Diego and published by Rockstar Games. Red Dead Redemption is a third-person open-world game that takes place on the western frontier. Like That's, that's the whole big environment with that open world. Uh, gameplay is inspired, certainly, by Rockstar's most popular franchise, Grand Theft Auto. There is a gunslinger gameplay mechanic called Deadeye, which allows players to slow time down and mark multiple shooting targets on enemies. The, the time speeds back up and then poof, 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 it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty flashy. Uh, there's also a morality system that kind of influences the whole world, whether you're, you're good or bad actions. Uh, influences how the world and the characters look at the protagonist. The story takes place in 1911 in the United States, and players are experiencing the world of Red Dead Redemption through the eyes of John Marston. Now, John Marston is a former outlaw who has had his wife, Abigail, and his son, Jack, taken away from him and placed into custody by government agents. See, the government tells John that he'll be able to see his family again and all of his past crimes will be wiped away on a clean slate if he hunts down the former members of his old gang. Now, John says, oh, okay, I got to do this. So he goes and confronts Bill Williamson and his men over at their Fort Mercer stronghold. And it doesn't go so well. Uh, John is shot and left for dead, but he is rescued by a rancher named Bonnie McFarlane. Now, John is at his lowest point possible, and he'll have to make acquaintances with people throughout this environment and uh, build up whatever standing he can make in the world if he hopes to see his family again. So the questions being here, where are the members of John's old gang? And can John live happily ever after with his family? So Joe, this is where I'll ask you, what are our experiences with Red Dead Redemption. Never played it. I've never touched either, uh, any of the Red Dead games, actually. Um, I haven't really played a lot of Rockstar games in general outside of just dicking around in some Grand Theft Auto games. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what stopped me ever from taking a look at the first Red Dead Redemption. Uh, obviously, at that time, I didn't know Red Dead Revolver existed, which seems to be the case for a lot of people, mm -hmm. uh, weirdly enough. Or maybe not weirdly enough, since Rockstar called the next game Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, and I haven't played that one either. I haven't played the second one either. So, pretty much nothing. Well, hopefully, this is a learning experience then. Uh, because, for me, I feel like I bought the game maybe within a year or two of it coming out. I wasn't like a, an at-launch sort of player. I never really have been a Rockstar Games player, actually. Uh, but the first one I ever really got into was actually L.A. Noir, And I've shared that story before where, you know, I bought my PS3 like you in 2011. 
Uh, it was around May of that time. So it was probably about a year after Red Dead Redemption was technically out. But I like the idea of L.A. Noir more. I played the crap out of that game. We'll talk about that game eventually on a future episode. Uh, count on it. But you know, Red Dead Redemption was never one that I kind of you know really jived with. If anything, I always remember like that was one of the first video games I remember a very intense video advertisement campaign on YouTube on video game websites, like to the point of it being excessive. And you know, remembering certain things like. Uh, you know, John Marston saying like, well, it's either going to be me or you. It might as well be you. And it's like uh, little things like that. It's just, you remember how excessively it was advertised. Uh, so when I did eventually get around to playing it, probably, you know, a year or two after it came out, I started it. I, I liked it, but it didn't really sink its teeth into me yet. And so something else came up, played other games. It would take me until... August 2016, before I would get around to trying it again, and uh, this was through the backwards compatibility on Xbox One uh, being available. So I'm like, all right, you know, kind of upscales textures. I want to see how well this runs, and I, I really should play this game. It's one of these very highly critically reviewed games, and so I played it and just could not stop. Like, it really sunk its teeth into me then. I think it's another example of like sometimes you got to give games another chance uh, because like I loved that experience with Red Dead Redemption. Got around to buying two digitally at launch and I had the same sort of thing where I, I tried a little bit of it and it did not sink its teeth into me. So if, if all stands to reason, we're going to wait until PlayStation 5 comes out. <laughs> few years down the road i'll try it again and i'll I'll love red dead redemption too but <laughs> it's just one of those things i don't know like i don't always get along perfectly well with rockstar games but certain ones just hit the right spot i don't know what it is about i think it's just the same reason i don't play a lot of big open world games is just i gravitate towards something where it's like all right go here next and which is weird because like I do have a lot of open world games. It's not GTA like games that I dislike because I love Saints Row. Saints Row is fun. Mm. Uh, I had a good time with Saints Row three and four, and kind of two until I got to a motorcycle level. Um, and those play like GTA games, but and like what I've played of GTA five, I enjoy, but I've just never found any sort of magnetism for me towards Red Dead, and I'm not. A hundred percent sure why? Because I like Western stuff. Western mm. stuff is cool. It's a cool period of history. I just I don't know. It does take a certain you know feeling to it, and that's interesting. If if because you could easily write write it off and say you know well, I just don't like westerns. Okay, all right, fine, fair enough. But I don't know. It's it's something that I, I feel like it does take a little bit to really sink its teeth into you, for better or for worse. Uh, but it is a remarkable game. Uh, with a very interesting soundtrack, uh, and I would like to talk about that today, certainly. Uh, now, development on the game, as I mentioned at the beginning there, did begin in 2005. Uh, it involved more than 800 people around the world, apparently, to develop, which is just bananas. Uh, it was one of the most expensive video games ever made at the time, with a full budget between 80 and $100 million. Again, that made pale... In comparison, but at the time, 
coming up in 2010, that was was pretty wild. Uh, now, Rockstar was certainly intrigued by the power of next generation consoles when they started in 2005, uh, and they wanted to create this open world environment, and they saw the Western frontier as an untapped subject for that kind of world. They carried the shooting mechanic from Red Dead Revolver over with, you know, the Deadeye system and all that, but everything else changed to properly fit the open world. Uh, developers made trips to the Library of Congress for documents about this time period. They traveled to the southwestern U.S. to take different pictures of the desert, and they studied plenty of Western films. Even though the game was originally shown as a tech demo in 2005, the game was officially revealed by Rockstar on February 3rd, 2009. Uh, just as overall saying that this is the game that exists, a reveal trailer came a few months later on May 6th, 2009. Uh, this is a game that near the end of its development, it had to be pushed about a month back uh, just for polishing things. So May 18th in North America for 2010. I think the most fascinating thing about Red Dead Redemption, just about the game, about its history, and like the mythos outside of the game, is all about a man named Rob Wheathoff. Now, Rob Wheathoff is an actor who moved to Los Angeles to pursue big dreams. He lands the video game role of a lifetime, and then he walked away from the industry. I think John Marston is one of the best, well-realized protagonists in video game history, and it's honestly due to Wheathoff's performance. Uh, it's, it's so natural. It's so genuine. It's unlike anything you've ever heard before as far as like his voice, but it, it's so powerful and i think if you have any interest in red dead redemption in this if you have not seen the nine minute video feature that polygon made it's on youtube it's called finding john marston and it's like a, a nine minute little biography about rob's story it is fascinating uh absolutely one of my most favorite things about this game's history and it, it does you know, kind of come back full circle because when Red Dead Redemption 2 came out last year, look who's back to play the role of John Marson. It's Rob Wheathoff. But he didn't do anything in video games like since then. You'd think this man would have a stellar career based on that one performance, and he just walked away from it all. In the ages of, you know, Nolan North and Troy Baker, like Rob Wheathoff may have been able to have it all. Just it's it's such an interesting story, and I do highly recommend it. Uh but as far as this game being critically reviewed, it's reviewed remarkably well. Uh, Metacritic score of 95, which, yeah, that's pretty rare air for a lot of games. Most of the time when we talk about games, they're like in the 80s mm -hmm. or the like high 70s. Low 90s, maybe at like the highest point. But there's only a handful of games that get 95 and up. So uh, this is... This is one of the you know, best games of that generation with Xbox 360 and PS3. And honestly, I think the only really critical part of reviews or, or middling reception was the game's multiplayer mode. And I know that the game had a multiplayer mode. Shows what I played the game for and only remembered, but... I also didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so if anything, like that was like the only knock against the game uh, because it's, it's just a remarkable 
an amazingly well-made campaign. Uh, the soundtrack in particular, though, because we like to talk about the music for the game, uh, was also highly praised by critics, noting how it really sounded right out of a Hollywood film. And, you know, those, all of that advertising that I mentioned, all of those great reviews, it translated to incredible sales. As of February 2017, Red Dead Redemption had shipped over 15 million units, which for only an Xbox 360 and PS3 game, not a PC game, yeah, that, that's pretty, pretty amazing. The game did win plenty of awards, including Game of the Year at the Spike Video Game Awards and the Game Developer's Choice Awards. The score in particular also highly awarded. Uh, won Best Original Score and Best Song uh, in a game at the Spike Video Game Awards. Uh, it won Best Audio at the Game Developer's Choice Awards. And the score also won the top prizes at something called the Game Audio Network Guild that year. Fun fact. That might come up in a second. Indeed. More on that later. Uh, the game received a zombie-themed DLC expansion called Undead Nightmare on October 26th, 2010. Uh, this was bundled in Game of the Year releases of, of Red Dead Redemption. And then you had Red Dead Redemption 2 that released eight years to the day after Undead Nightmare on PS4 and Xbox One. Uh, this was a prequel to the Red Dead Redemption story. So yes, you did have a younger John Marston appear in it. And yes, Rob Wheathoff played him uh, again, remarkably well. Uh, and that game, if we're talking about like review scores and all that, that Metacritic for that game is a 97. So like Rockstar knows how to make really, really critically acclaimed games. Uh, yeah, so it's that's, that's certainly something. Um, it's relevant today, of course, because Red Dead Redemption 2 is out now, out today on PC. And so that's a, a big deal for that one. It'll also be a launch title on Google Stadia later this month on November 19th. The music for Red Dead Redemption uh, is partially responsible by Woody Jackson. Uh, Woody Jackson and Bill Elm, or Bill Elm and Woody Jackson, are the, the main uh, people who worked and composed this soundtrack. Uh, but Woody Jackson is an interesting character and has quite the career at Rockstar. So I feel like there was more about him. Plus, he was like the sole composer for Red Dead Redemption 2. So when plans change, it's like, well, we, we still get to talk about Woody Jackson. Uh, and I, I definitely learned a lot, and I, I'd like to share that with you. So he was born Woodrow Wilson Jackson III on June 10th, 1970 in Oil City, Pennsylvania, uh, raised in York, Pennsylvania and Richmond, Virginia. For some reason, that is the most this man will go on to write music for a cowboy game name <laughs> I've ever heard in my entire life. Woodrow Wilson Jackson III. Woody Jackson. Well, maybe it's like, I don't know, is it maybe because of like Woody and Toy Story and he's a cowboy? I don't know. Maybe. It's great, though. <laughs> yeah, it, it totally works. Uh, he attended Virginia State University, where he took harmonica lessons, of all things. Didn't say what his major was or anything like that, because he actually dropped out when he ran out of money. And uh, he turned to playing guitar with the band The Useless Playboys. Uh, he eventually moved to Los Angeles in 1992, where he did things like he played in bands, he worked at a guitar shop, 
and he worked as a session musician for different Hollywood projects. Now, we've talked about the Play for Japan initiative before. This was the 2011 tribute album to help raise money for the Red Cross after the Tohoku earthquake and tsunamis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned how it's, it was organized by Akira Yamaoka. Uh, Laura Shigihara contributed with Jump, correct? Yes, Jump. And then Bear McCreary also put something on that. And I, I'm sure we've talked about a couple others that were on that album, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. Yeah, so it's an interesting thread that like we find ourselves keeping on coming back to, because apparently Woody Jackson also contributed a song uh, to that album called Moshi Moshi. Uh, so uh, another one into that web, uh, he had an interesting quote about his approach to composing music. He said, quote, I'm trying to respect the past, but not ignore the present. I always try to approach music with an open mind, like a newborn baby where everything is always fresh. When it leads to happy accidents, music can be a really magical thing. Uh, Woody Jackson is married to his wife, Sharon, and has two daughters, Georgina Washington and Theodora Roosevelt. Something makes me think that uh, the names in his family have a theme. Can't put my finger on it, though. Just <laughs> might a little bit with, of course, still the last name of Jackson. So Woody Jackson, uh, his discography when it comes to composing for games, there's Red Dead Redemption, there's Grand Theft Auto Five, and Red Dead Redemption 2. So a pretty amazing string of games right there, to be honest. Uh, he also composed some incidental music for L.A. Noir. For TV composing, he contributed compositions for the first season of Nashville. And his website said that he was a musician on soundtracks and scores for SpongeBob SquarePants. That's interesting. I think that's going to be a first of the composers we've covered. Which is weird, because how? How is this the first time we've ever mentioned SpongeBob? You'd think we would have, but I'm not sure. That's uh, that's certainly interesting. He's also composed some of you know some films, uh, but I didn't honestly recognize any of them. But I found it more interesting that he was a musician again, a session musician on scores for Oceans Twelve and Thirteen, The Devil Wears Prada, Tenacious D in The Pick of Destiny, Youth and Revolt, and several other films. So I found that particularly interesting. Hmm. When it came to the soundtrack and its history and development for Red Dead Redemption. Like I mentioned, the score composed by Bill Elm and Woody Jackson. Uh, they're friends who met in 1995 through playing different bands in the L.A. scene, and they ultimately connected through the band The Friends of Dean Martinez. This score is especially notable because of its exceedingly dynamic nature. Uh, it is composed based on lots of stems, and their use you know, gets added and removed based on what is happening in game. Even to the point where it's like, you know, they mention like, if you're just getting on a horse, like this base kick, you know, fires up. Uh, So it's just this really dynamic score. And it's interesting to note because all these stems have to work together, right? So to maintain consistency, the score has a fixed tempo of 130 beats per minute and everything is in a minor. Which, like, that's about, you know, we'll say we don't often go in music theory and all that, but to have a consistent key and a tempo, you'd worry about it, like, sounding too samey. But I think it's because of the dynamic nature that it really doesn't. 
it, it does kind of have the same sound, of course, with the key. Like you're going to kind of hear the same sort of notes over and over again. Um, but at the same time, like they do enough and it's dynamic enough to really stand out. And obviously it won all sorts of awards. So it's, uh, it apparently took a long time to research how to, you know, make this work with all the different stems and function properly in the in-game environment. But also as a result, when we're talking about an official soundtrack release that we're taking some of these songs from, that may not necessarily be the same experience that a player uh, has in the game, except for a couple exceptions that we'll get to. Uh, but I just found that, yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting to have it be so dynamic, but, you know, lock the tempo, lock the key. I wonder if other games that have used dynamic soundtracks had like similar rules. Like did Banjo Kazooie have a similar rule? I wonder, I guess that doesn't really make sense. That wouldn't, that's a different kind of dynamic soundtrack. Cause it all only had to match one song. Right. Weird. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's certainly, I, I think different than most of the scores we've covered uh, on this show before the music was intended to imitate soundtracks of 1960s Western films, uh, particularly Ennio Morricone's work on the Dollars Trilogy, uh, which is, you know, a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly, which I didn't know that was a third in a trilogy. So I know that because I live with Ben. <laughs> well, I, I think that makes sense, yes. But So that was news to me. Uh, but of course, you know, like that was kind of what the public at large knows as the Western sound, right? Because during Jackson's research, you know, looking back to the time in 1911, uh, there was really no such thing as a Western sound back then. So they kind of had to lean into something that audiences would really identify with. 14 hours of music uh, were composed for the game's main missions, over 15 months of work. By the time Undead Nightmare was included, this got up to about 24 hours of music. This was all recorded and mixed at Woody Jackson's personally owned studio in Los Angeles. He he bought this studio and it's called Vox Recording Studios, also known as Electrovox. This studio was apparently originally founded in 1931. Woody Jackson bought it in 2009 and it's apparently one of the oldest private recording studios in the United States. So... Yeah, a studio that just isn't open to the general public. It's one of the oldest. I I found that really interesting. Ended up being mastered at Capitol Studios in Hollywood. Lots of different uh, unique instruments to add to that Western sound. Uh, the, the jaw harp is used for that traditional Western twang. The wang, 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 wang kind of, kind of sound there. Uh, you, of course, have just these different unique sounds created through experiments to try to emulate what people think of as Western sounds. So one notable example was playing a trumpet against the head of a timpani drum, like the surface of that drum, just to kind of get it muffled a little bit. And then there were different musicians in the world of Red Dead Redemption 2, uh, whether they're just, you know, they're playing an instrument randomly to give flavor to the open world or just needing uh, a performer for certain instruments for the score. Uh, and certain examples of these musicians, one in particular, uh, is the harmonica player Tommy Morgan. 
Tommy Morgan is apparently one of the most heard harmonicists in the world through his contributions to over 500 films playing the harmonica. And he lends his performance in this game as well, uh, as does piano player John Kirby and Amir Yakmai on the Stro violin. So basically what, what is being said there is if you've heard a harmonica in a film, it was probably that dude. Mm-hmm. Like more, more likely than not. That's really cool. And he apparently has to his credit, like a few episodes of the original Twilight Zone as far as composing credits. So like going way back. <laughs> Just amazing. What does this soundtrack sound like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's get into our five critical tracks. And we have to start with theme from Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, it's it's the main theme. You're pretty much going to hear this tune a lot, uh, just as kind of like the main theme, like John Marston's main theme. Um, so yeah, I, you're getting all those kind of instruments in there with trumpets and some guitar, percussion, uh, even getting some like horse galloping-like sounds in there. This one is kind of more like, it's expansive a little bit, really just sets the flavor in a way and it just sets the mood really nicely but if you're thinking of da 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 like that's that is this game's main leitmotiv the main stem that if you want to get that injection in there that's really this main theme so first i want to i want to just go ahead and cover real quick this is the first i've heard of any of these songs ever mm. um even this one uh but even even listening to it earlier, I did not pick up on the idea that it is the the drums are horse galloping mm-hmm. until you mentioned it. That's really cool. I like that touch. I like that touch a lot. Yeah, it, it just really sets that environment really nicely. And I'm sure then if if you live you know with your roommate Ben, who loves Western movies, like you hear this and it's like it is undeniably Western frontier as hell. Oh yeah, this is this is Ennio Morricone, for sure. Uh, again, a name I only know because of my roommate. <laughs> um, he is he grew up watching a lot of western movies uh, because his dad is really into westerns, and so he's a he's a big John Wayne fan at the very least. Uh, he might be an old school Clint Eastwood fan. I don't actually know. I know he likes the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he likes mm-hmm. the Dollars Trilogy, and that's Clint Eastwood, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so I I think he is a fan of that. So yeah, like I know of these things because of that, uh, because I've been living with this man for like three years, and I've known him for eleven now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so when I hear any of these songs, really, I'm like, yeah, all right, that sounds that's about what I expect. Yeah, so he nailed he nailed the tone perfectly. 
Yeah, and again, like we've always talked about, you know, for the soundtrack, you know, it, it's like just the the distillation of like the ideal sense of what they'd want these songs to sound like. Uh, but again, we've you know, with all these ideas of stems and dynamic scores, like it's it is not that for players. But like this is taking the three D possibilities of game audio, game music that's dynamic, crushing it down to a two D ideal experience. So it's like it's. Very interesting to hear. So then when we compare it to number two on the Critical Five, we have The Shootist. So here you go. It's it's continuing riffing a little bit off that main theme. It's not it exactly, but it's really trying to echo and call it back. But there is a more deliberate, intense pace to this. And just think like it may sound faster, but it's it's still that same 130 beats per minute. But the rhythm of the percussion just really feels more driving. It's almost like you're chasing someone, maybe someone who's know, escaping the law or something, someone that you have to track down for whatever reason. But you know, compare that to like you know the basking in the wonders of the environment, uh, and you just feel how these these maybe similar elements can create two pretty differently sounding songs. Though this is still more Morricone. This one's more Morricone than the yes, other one, actually, because yes. of the whistling. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so, you know, uh, and I think that's my favorite My favorite part is the whistling, because I, I like a song you can whistle along to, and it helps when there's whistling in the song. Yeah. Uh, so I think, for the most part, that's... I think this might be my favorite uh though there's one further down your list that might actually be my favorite for name alone uh-huh. but this one i think as a song might be my favorite on your on your critical 5 i think the song that most people identify with when it comes to red dead redemption though is number 3 on our critical 5 this is far away step in front of a runaway train Just to feel alive again Pushing forward through the night Aching just to blow aside It's so far, so far away And now for something completely different. <laughs> Uh, this is composed and performed by Jose Gonzalez. Uh, Jose Gonzalez is pretty notable for these like deep acoustic guitar strings that are really present in this song. He's got like this signature dual voice uh, recording sections, and like the the fidelity on his recordings is always like generally pretty crunchy, as far as I've heard. So like it's a it's a pretty unique sound that he has going for him. Far Away is notable in the context of Red Dead Redemption because 
you know, you're you're hearing so much of this score that is very Western, very Morricone, like. Uh, but then there's this moment where John Marson has to enter Mexico, and you know he's getting up on his horse and he's riding away, and this song starts playing, and based on the dynamic weather, the time of day, and all, I mean, it's it's still this it's this gorgeous environment for Mexico. No matter what time of day you're playing as, no matter what the the weather might be like. But it this song, like for vocals to come in, is like shocking to what you've been hearing so far in the Red Dead score. And it's just this really beautiful moment that like it's just it's playing and John's riding his horse and you're in full control. I mean, don't get off the horse. That that would stop the song <laughs> just embrace and enjoy the moment uh but yeah it, it's really tied to this moment of, of john entering mexico i was really close to having jose gonzalez's crosses on our life is strange episode and i first learned of him from playing that game with that song and i never realized that he did this song this far away song but going back to it it's like Oh, yep, that is 100% him. I just, I had never made that connection before. It's totally different, but it's really powerful. And I think that's why most people remember this song. It's funny because there's actually a song and I, I, I'm going to need to hear it uh, for, let me part the curtain just slightly a little bit. Uh, I do listen to the clips like as Peter's talking, just to make sure I've refreshed myself on what the songs are because I have the memory of a goldfish with Alzheimer's. And uh, there is one song later on the list, I believe, where I was like, this sounds like I'd hear it in Life is Strange. So to hear that that's not the one by an artist who actually had a song in Life is Strange is a bit of a weird feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's a powerful moment in the game accompanied with a great song. Let's get back to the, the Western action, though, with number four on the Critical Five. Trigonometry. This is the one. This is the, for name alone, this is my favorite song on the list. What a good pun. It's so clever. Uh, you know, the, the bass is really just kicking here. Really giving you a good pace. And again, it's, it's another horse chase kind of song. Again, like with the shootist, with this one, it's one of these ones where it's like, it's not clear to tell where exactly this plays in the game because of all the different stems and trying to combine it all together. Uh, but there's just different elements here in play with this one that it, it catches your ear. I think it makes it memorable to me listening to it. Uh, whether it's the whoop whoop kind of uh, sound there, or or this uh, that echoing ending uh, string bit at the end of the clip there, the like these things are just it's so western and they capture it so perfectly. But of course, it's this bold brass section that's really taking over 
uh, again, it's like, it's one that just, it caught my ear. It had all these different elements of undeniably Western music, what we think of as Western music. And, you know, the, the punny name to top it all off. See, this is going to sound weird, but it sounds more like a spy song to me. Hmm. Okay. Like, I hear this song and I think, like, this is playing in, like, not a James Bond movie, but, like, a bootleg James, like a, a <laughs> Bames John movie. Um, It's good. Uh, It's just really, it's really funny to me that you describe it as, like, it's it's so Western and I'm over here, like, I feel like this would play while James Bond saves the queen uh, from like a helicopter and then they have to jump out of the helicopter. Then then I started to realize that, you know, those two, outside of instrumentation, those two genres don't sound that different. (laughs) That's a good point. Wow. (laughs) That's a weird realization to come to, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. And I don't know what to do with it. And now, I'm sure none of you do either. Now I'm just imagining Sean Marston as the secret agent. Make it happen, Rockstar. I'm okay with it. Maybe that's what agent was going to be before Rockstar canceled it. We solved the puzzle. We figured it out. (laughs) I got it. All right. (laughs) Number five on the critical five. We're going to tone it down a little bit again. This is Compass. And I know the only compass that I need Oh, is the one is back to you And the burning blisters on my feet will call To hold me as I'm close to fall Away from the home of your arms I stray this is composed and performed by Jamie Liddell. It's a pretty simple acoustic guitar piece. But you know when vocals come into it, like it's it's another important moment in the story. And this is one where, you know, John's getting on his horse. He's riding towards a specific location. And then this song comes into play. And this plays when John is riding back home because his wife and son have been delivered there by the government. John has fulfilled his, his promise, his oath to the government, and he's finally going to see his family again. It's a really heartwarming, important moment. And maybe the lyrics are a little cheesy of, you know, like, you know, like I'm coming home. Like the compass is like kind of pointing home. I'm going to bring me back to you. Uh, the only thing I've ever known. Like, it, it, yeah, it may be cheesy, but after you've gone through this long adventure, it's so worth it. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a heartwarming, good feeling song tied with that moment. I agree with everything you've said. This is the one that sounds like I would have heard it in Life is Strange. <laughs> oh, see, I almost think the other one in my cutting room floor might have been. I, these all could have been in Life is Strange, honestly. <laughs> To be fair, yes, but this is the one I think. I think it's the fact that it's just like an acoustic guitar and somebody singing, mm-hmm. uh, s- like always seems to bring up that like, oh yeah, I'd hear this in Life is Strange when like that during like an end montage that all those episodes had. Yeah, yeah, uh, something like that. On my cutting room floor, I have a couple. 
the first one being Dead Man's Gun. Your hands upon a dead man's gun and you're looking down the sights. Your heart is worn and the seams are torn and See, I don't know. I, I think this one is pretty Life is Strange-like. Uh, it is composed and performed by Ashtar Command. This is the end credits. And so, yeah, uh, the, the end of the game happens. It's pretty sad. It's one of the, again, it's one of these ones where it's like, if you're a fan of video games, you can't escape what happens at the end of the original Red Dead Redemption. Like, I'm sorry, it's, it is what it is. So I can throw up a spoiler warning if you really want me to. If you wanted to skip to the next game, I understand. Uh, but overall, just talking about the death of John Marston and how the government kind of betrays him and says, well, well, now you know too much and you've still done too much. So we're still going to you know, come to your, your house and kill you. Uh, you know, there is another song. Like there's like four vocal tracks on this album release and one of them like it's, it's a slow baritone uh just solo voice but that's more like for the the burial sort of scene but this one is just like you're at the end of the adventure and you're just feeling crushed and so the vibe of the piece the vibe of this song really really plays well and then there's the whole thing where it comes back three years later and you're playing as john marson's son and you get to finally uh you know take out your revenge on the top government man there. So I, it's, it's a, it's a powerful overall sequence of events, but for this one to punctuate with the end credits here, it's a, it's a good one. The other one I'd like to highlight on the cutting room floor is born unto trouble. And again, it's completely different. And you think like, well, you know, that 130 beats per minute, like how, how does this, well, if you cut that in half, you know, kind of slow out all of the, the intervals for all your notes, you kind of get something slow and, and plotting like this, but it's just only a piano, a violin. And here you go, Joe, someone whistling. Yay. It is really simple. But like it's just these powerful melodies, the ba 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 ba, like it. That's something that you'll be walking around this open world, and it's just, it just you know kind of builds up and echoes and just creates that feeling. Uh, I, I heard this in this track, and it's like, oh yes, like this is this is Red Dead Redemption. Uh, I liked the other tracks more, but I, I felt right at least putting it here in the cutting room floor. So what will I never forget about the game? Uh, yeah, for me, it's just another example of like a revisited game. Like sometimes don't just give up on games because you can still come back to them, even if it's years later, and have really powerful experiences with them uh, because it is such a near flawless experience if you really get into it. Uh, it was to the point where when people were playing Red Dead Redemption 2 
which leaned in really hard into the realism of playing the game. People were like, myself included, look back on Red Dead Redemption. I'm like, this original game was a more fun experience. Yes, Red Dead 2, Red Dead Redemption 2, Red Dead 3, uh, a more <laughs> realistic game. And it's, it's more artistic in that sense. But is it more fun? Like, I think myself and a lot of people have more fun, more fond memories of the original Red Dead Redemption. So, I don't know. Maybe, Joe, it's not necessarily a game you'll get to. I mean, I, there are others, certainly, that I've talked about on this show that I would recommend more first. Uh, but it's, it's a great experience. Meanwhile, I'll never forget that Tommy Morgan played harmonica on over 500 films. I still can't get over that. If that's the one thing you take away from this episode, awesome. So be it. <laughs> to transition to our next game, we like to highlight a fan cover, a fan remix. So whether it's on YouTube or OC Remix, I found a YouTube channel called Welcome to the 80s. And they had a cover of theme from Red Dead Redemption. But it's a synthwave cover. And if you want to talk about a different sort of style from Western to synthwave, oh boy. It translates so well, too. Like, weirdly well. I agree. It totally does. Hope you listen to it. Hope you enjoy. And we'll be right back. All right, it's time. Time to steal... Not your heart. That's a different day. Maybe. Not Nothing planned right now, but eventually. Spring 2020. <laughs> it's time to just steal stuff. Um, and we're going to talk about my game, Sly 2, Band of Thieves. And I'm very much excited to talk about this game, even if I sadly did not find all that much about it. But it's okay, we'll persevere, we'll figure it out. Slide 2 Band of Thieves was originally released for the PlayStation 2 on September 14th, 2004. It is developed by Sucker Punch Entertainment and was published by Sony Computer Entertainment. Uh, it is a 3D platformer where the player takes control of the titular thief Sly Cooper and continues the story from the first game. As you might have guessed, this is a sequel. I know the fact that it's called Sly 2 probably gave that away, but I figure I should probably say that. Uh, it's a sequel to the uh, other PS2 game, Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccoonus, which was released in 2002. In that game, you played as Sly Cooper, who uh, is a descendant of a long line of master thieves, the Cooper clan, uh, like stretching all the way back to ancient Egypt. Uh, probably further. In fact, yeah, doesn't Sly 4? Yeah, Sly 4 has a caveman ancestor, so even further than that. Mm -mm. Uh, so he is in this long lineage of thieves, and over the years they have put all of their information, all of the moves that they have perfected, the techniques and all that, into this book called The Thievius Raccoonus. And one day, a group called the Fiendish Five broke into Sly's house and killed his father, and stole the Thievius Raccoonus, ripping out the pages and spreading them across the corners of the earth 
uh, to their various operations. And Sly 1 is about him uh, going to the various uh, members of the Fiendish Five, taking them out, and getting the pages of the Thievius Raccoonus back alongside uh, his friends, Bentley and Murray. Uh, Bentley, who serves as the brains of the outfit, and Murray, who serves as the driver in Sly 1. Um, and that's pretty much all you need to know about Sly 1, for the most part. Except for the final enemy that you fight in the game is a big old mechanical owl named Clockwork, who has been alive for the entirety of the Cooper clan's uh, existence because he is so jealous of them and hates them so much that he has used that hate to basically make himself immortal. And then he replaced all of his body parts with robot parts because he hated them so much. And he was the leader of the fiendish five. He's the reason they went and killed Sly's dad, etc., etc. There. Now you're caught up with the story in Sly two. Uh, it opens up two years after Sly defeats Clockwork, uh, and he learns that though he might have destroyed Clockwork in the last game, his parts still survived, and they were recovered and brought to a museum in Cairo. And so Sly, worried that somebody might put it back together and bring Clockwork back, uh, says, no, we gotta break into that museum and we gotta get the parts back. Uh, and so... They do. They break into this Cairo museum and then suddenly find that somebody has already stolen the clockwork parts. And two cops, one of them being a character from the first game, Carmelita Fox, who is basically a cop who's made it her life goal to take Sly to jail because she has a crush on him and won't admit it. And he has a crush on her and admits it fairly often. Uh, and a new partner for her, Constable Neela. So they show up and are like, "Ah oh man, you returned to the scene of the crime. You must have already stolen the parts. Which, first of all, doesn't make sense. If he already got all the parts, why would he go back? Like, that, that the criminal always returns to the scene of the crime? That's never made sense to me. Because why would they ever do that? <laughs> ever. The crime's done. They don't have a reason to be there anymore. Whatever. Uh, and Neela drops a hint that the gang that is actually responsible for stealing the clockwork parts is a group called the Claw Gang. So Sly, Bentley, and Murray must now figure out how to track down the various members of the Claw Gang and get those clockwork parts back. The most important part about Sly 2 is that it completely changes the gameplay flow of the Sly series. Uh, Sly 1 is a game, it's more a straightforward 3D platformer. Like, it's just got linear levels, it's got a map select screen, basically, uh, even though that is kind of an open world thing, but not really. Uh, in Sly 2 and forward for the rest of the series, it's more, it gives you an open world, they describe them as jungle gyms, and there are various missions at various spots on the map that help you sort of build up to a heist in the end. Uh, the other big change in Sly 2 is that Sly was the only playable character, basically, for the majority of uh, Sly 1. In Sly 2, Bentley and Murray also became playable, um, with each their own, like, sort of drawbacks, and they were balanced to, to work very differently from each other. So, for instance, Sly is very fast and nimble, 
and he has the easiest time navigating the environments. But his strength in a fight is only about medium. He doesn't do great when fighting, like, the big guards especially. Meanwhile, Murray has uh, sort of stopped just being the driver and has made the transition into being the brawn of the group. And so he can't sneak to save his life because he's a hippo and he's huge, but he can take out like big guards in two punches, (laughs) basically just makes quick work of any guard in the entire game. And Bentley being the brains uh, is extremely fragile and also can't really sneak all that well. And he also can't fight, but what he can do is he has tranquilizer darts that can put guards to sleep. He can put a bomb next to him, kills him in one hit. Bada bing, bada boom. Perfect. So all three characters, like I said, work together to complete jobs around the map and, uh, you know, get ready to perform a heist. And then you get to perform said heist and it's super, super cool. Uh, And this is the gameplay style that would stick around for the rest of the series, like I said. So this is the part where I ask. What are our experiences? What are your experiences with Sly 2? Because you know mine. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I know yours, but I don't think we've ever sat down and talked about them. No, we haven't. Uh, This game series is dope. If uh, anyone has not played the Sly Cooper series, I I don't think there's a high barrier of entry at all. Uh, If anything, it may just be the whole thing of, do you need a PS3 to play like the HD remaster? Or a PS2 mm-hmm. to play the original games, which may be harder to find and come across at this point. Uh, but yeah, they're they're super fun. Can you also play it on Vita? Are these on Vita? I don't think the Sly Collection ever hit Vita, but I know that Sly 4 was on Vita. 4 did. I, that's that's where I played 4, actually. Um, yeah, 2 is, is great. Because uh, you're right, it does change things up significantly. Uh, the first game is as simple as... PS2 3D sneaky platformers go. Like it is very bare bones, charming characters, charming story. Really sets the foundation well, but you're right. Uh, opening up to these these jungle gyms and continuing the great environments and great characters and everything being told like a, a you know episodic, like you know, TV show sort of in a way. Uh like with you know the the enemy of the week in a sense. Uh it's so charming and such a great series, uh, you know, with the stealth mechanics, you know, it's not metal gear solid, like levels. Certainly it's all, it's almost like, I don't want to say necessarily babies for a stealth game, but the stealth is pretty easy. All things considered. Yeah. It's, it's extremely easy. It's, it's cartoonish stealth. Yeah. Uh, it's the kind of stealth where uh, guards have flashlights in front of them. As long as you're not in the flashlight, they can't see you. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a super charming series. And, and I'm not just saying all this because I know it's one of your favorite series of all time. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's incredibly enjoyable. And uh, this is where it really sets the tone for the rest of the series to come. If I remember correctly, we are the ones that got you to play it. Like me and oh, Ben. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh because Ben is, he's coming up a lot this episode, wow. Uh, he and I, that was one of the first big things that we really bonded over, was that by the time I met Ben, I had already played Sly's 1 through 3. Uh, because Sly 2 is actually the first game I ever bought because of a TV commercial. 
Oh, wow. Uh, I don't remember the commercial at all, but I remember that I saw it and I was like, that game's pretty, looks pretty cool. And then I went and bought it. So Sly 2 was the first Sly game that I ever played. But yeah, without the original? <laughs> yeah, I went and bought the original uh, afterwards. Well, I was not, I was a kid, so I didn't buy the original. I got my <laughs> dad to buy the original for me. Um, and I played that. I loved that, though not as much as Sly 2. And then Sly 3 became the first game that I ever like followed from announcement to release. So this series has a has a special place in my heart. I really I really love it. Uh, Sly two I think is outside of Sly four, which because just in virtue of being newer, I haven't had a, a chance to go back and replay it and that you know that kind of thing. I think Sly two is the one I've replayed the least. Mm, yeah, but I believe it is also largely considered one of the best games in the series. Uh, I I like three a little bit more, but two is very very good. Yeah, I remember that I. Uh, oh, here's here's an interesting one. Uh, Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccoonus and Sly Two Band of Thieves were the first two games that I got platinum trophies for. Or among the first platinum trophies I got on my PS3. Uh, didn't get a platinum on Sly Three. Uh, because there's some garbage with those trophies there, but uh, they're they're easy platinum. Uh, they're easy platinums too. So if that's appealing to some people, surprisingly, I've never done that. I do know that on PS2, I have 100% at all three Sly games. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the original PS2, I and I don't 100% games lightly. <laughs> I have to really, really like a game to do that. So that should that should be an indicator how much. I love this series. Uh, Sly 5 when. So, there is not much on the development of this game, which I found actually kind of surprising, because I remember there being, like, a lot of behind-the-scenes videos that you could unlock. But it turns out I was mostly thinking of Sly 1. Uh, there are some for Sly 2. Uh, I do want to give a shout-out, by the way. Some of the information I got came from... Because, again, we, we sort of had to crunch on this, so my time to go look for information and go like really really dig for like interviews and stuff was not there but one thing i already knew and decided to go use as sort of a source there's a youtuber by the name of bmask who has done a big long retrospective on the first three sly games uh like his sly one video is like 45 minutes long his sly two video is a, an hour and 15 minutes uh they're fantastic i haven't watched Sly three yet ben and i are kind of waiting to watch it together it's apparently like an hour and a half long uh like it's a feature length film um but i'm very much looking forward to to watching it if you want an actual full deep dive on like even the design and uh how good this series is 100 you need to go check that series out it's super good and i hope he does Sly four even though uh judging by his videos he does not like Sly 4, and apparently that game is actually kind of unpopular in the fan base, which is news to me. So, hmm. the first game in the series had done relatively well. Uh, it got a lot of attention from the gaming press, for the most part, but like it released the same year as a bunch of other mascot platformers. So... It what like this was back in the day. I believe 
if if I remember the information correctly, it released the same year as both Ratchet and Clank and Jack and Daxter. <laughs> that sounds about right, yeah. So it had the chips stacked against it already, because like those already had like Naughty Dog behind them and Insomniac behind them. Like companies people already knew, and then Sucker Punch. Their game before Sly 1 was an N64 game called Rocket Robot on Wheels, and they hadn't made anything else before that. So, they weren't exactly working on name recognition there, but the game was charming enough that a lot of gaming press took notice of it, and it it won some awards, it sold well enough, like a million copies at one point, and so Sony was more than willing to bankroll a sequel. But they kind of figured that they wanted to change it up a little bit. They didn't just want to make Thievius Raccoonus again. And they they started to notice during, like, focus testing that players, whenever they got the chance, would try and, like, wander off the path. And, of course, with the level design of Thievius Raccoonus, there wasn't a lot of path to wander off of. Uh, it was just a straight line from beginning to end for pretty much every single level. And so they were like, well, hmm, what if we designed gameplay around that? Because one of the big criticisms that Thievius Raccoonus got was, well, I mean, look at Jack and Daxter. You can just walk around the world. Why can't you do that in Sly? So they're like, yeah, why can't you do that in Sly? And that's why they changed to a more open world sort of thing. Uh, the first prototype level for that sort of new format was uh, a level that actually took place in Monaco. Uh, there is actually video of this. Of this, uh, It's one of the videos you can unlock in-game for a certain amount of completion. I don't remember what percentage it is. But they will, like, with commentary, show you the first original level of the game. And it's unfinished. Like, stuff is untextured. Uh, there's a lot of boats. There's a lot of water. Apparently, at one point during the heist, Bentley was going to ram a boat into the docks, like ram a yacht into the docks, which I would have, I wish that would have still been in the game. <laughs> uh, but they were like, the, the level, as they put it, did make it into the game spiritually because it's, it's what really made the foundation more solid of like, this is how we want Sly 2 to play. Uh, we want it to, to big, wide open worlds, lots of options, things like that. Uh, they also apparently watched a lot of movies like The Italian Job and Ocean's Eleven in order to gain inspiration for the heist-based gameplay, uh, which I find very interesting. I've never seen either of those movies all the way through. Oh, Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorites. Every like scattered scene I've seen from Ocean's Eleven looks great, and I have no doubt I'd love that movie. I've just never had an opportunity to just sit down and watch it, which is a shame. Uh, and I should watch it, considering how much I love the sort of format of how Sly 2 runs its stuff. Uh, something I didn't know, actually, somehow, is that uh, Sly 2 can apparently make use of a USB headset on hmm. the PS2, where like you can set it up so that if you make noise, it alerts a guard. That's weird. I don't know why anyone would ever want that. Like, people have joked in the past of, like, what if there was a stealth game where, like, the Kinect could hear you, and you had to be quiet in real life, too, or the guards would hear you. 
And my first thought whenever I hear that is always like, yeah, that sounds awful. Your roommate or your mom or whoever comes in and is like, what do you want to eat, mom? I'm well, here come being the stealthy. I'm being stealthy. <laughs> like it sounds, it sounds bad. I don't want to play a game like that. But it was apparently an option. I've been a fan of this game since it released in like 2004. I've never heard of this feature. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty crazy. It's it's almost as dumb as 3's feature, which like tried to push really heavily on it's 3D. We have 3D missions. Yes. The game like I I don't know if if you are aware. Like I you are obviously aware of the the 3D. The game came with 3D glasses. Yeah. Like on the PS2. Mhm. The little red and blue ones, yeah. Yeah, it was really dumb. I think I did it once. I was like, "All right, well, how about never again?" <laughs> uh even as a child, I knew that was stupid. Uh, as for characters, apparently Murray was almost recast. Like Chris Mur- uh, Chris Murphy, who's the one that plays uh, Murray, who I put down on the outline as Chris Murray because <laughs> it was midnight. Um, apparently, like they were going to recast him, and according to him, there's there's some podcast. This is again from the B Mask video. He he uses various clips of a podcast that apparently just had all of the voice actors on and the writer and the head designer. And I need to go listen to these podcasts because they sound fascinating where they were talking about having like almost recast Chris Murphy. And according to the voice actor for Sly, he was like, yeah, I did a session with one of the guys that they hired and he was really frustrated because he knew he wasn't giving them exactly what they wanted. And apparently nobody could give them exactly what they wanted. And they went back to Chris Murphy because he was the only one that could. Hmm. Uh, and I think that was a great choice because he is so good as Murray. Uh, his voice is so fun. Uh, all the voices in this game are really fun, except for Carmelita, um, who changes every... Like, it's a tradition at this point. She's a <laughs> yeah. different voice actress every single game. Uh-huh. Um, and I kind of like... I like her voice all right. In Sly 2, it's just kind of weird that if you play Sly 1, and then she's like, she's got a Latin accent, and then in Sly 2, it's like, yeah, she has no accent whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then in Sly 3, they go back to her having a Latin American accent. It's And then in Sly 4, she's Grey Delisle. It's weird. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's bizarre. But, like, Matt Olsen is fantastic as Bentley. I'm blanking on the name of Sly's voice actor right now but he is absolutely fantastic like the whole cast just just great uh there a lot of the like readings are very cheesy but i think that works in the game's favor a lot yeah because it's, it's saturday morning cartoon style mm-hmm. and speaking of those voice actors uh because the game had a higher budget thanks to sony's support uh they were actually able to do recording sessions with voice actors in the same room which apparently they were not able to do in sly one at all uh, and from the sound of it, like this helped a lot. This was really fun. And they're all like big into improv, uh, groups like Matt Olson. Apparently he was like a friend of one of the developers through an improv group. And so he had a lot of improv skills and was able to sort of work through all of this. And they all were able to adapt to each other and sort of do lines on the fly. 
Uh, and it, it really shows that they were having a good time recording this script. Because uh, the character interactions are what really make uh, Sly 2 special. So, uh, it was relatively well-received upon release. It is currently sitting at an 88 on Metacritic, which is in the higher spectrum of games we've talked about. Obviously, it's not, you know, 95, but it's it's up there. Critics mainly enjoyed the story and uh, gameplay changes, but once again, they complained about it being too short. This is the second time... So first of all, this is the second time in two weeks where I've covered a game and critics are like, but it was too short. Luigi's Mansion? I can kind of get. All right, I disagree with you. The first Sly game I can get. The first Sly game I would get, it's like you can beat that game in three hours if you know what you're doing. Me and Ben do that all the time. But Sly 2 is like a dozen, right? Sly 2 is around, like how long to beat put Sly 2 at 15 hours long for a 3D platformer that is long. What is wrong with you people? This one doesn't make any sense to me. It's the longest game in the series. Well, I think Sly 4 is longer now, but for the original trilogy, it's the longest one by far. Because even Sly 3 is only like seven, eight hours long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't I don't get it. Uh, obviously, another sequel, Sly 3 Honor Among Thieves, would release the next year in 2005, which I did not realize they were so close together. Wow. Uh that is that is impressive, actually, considering how much more Sly 3 adds to the formula. Uh, and then Sucker Punch would go on to work on their PS3 title, Infamous, in 2009. Uh, and they haven't touched Sly since, unfortunately. Uh, Infamous, I wasn't a big fan of either of them, any of oh, them when I played them. I love that series. I think the first Infamous was the first one of the first games I bought for my PS3. One of the earlier games, at least. Might not have been one of the first, because I, I would have brought it up earlier if that was the case. But I, it was one of the earlier games I bought because of the Sucker Punch name attached to it, because I like Sly so much. And I just... I don't know what it was. I didn't dig it. Well, it's definitely very different than uh, Sly Cooper, that's for sure. Boy, is it. That's one of the main reasons why they made Infamous, is because they wanted to work on something different than Sly Cooper, and I cannot blame them. They had been working on those games for like five, six years at that point, and they wanted to mix it up a little bit. Uh, and they're currently working on, I forget the name of their current game, but it's the it's one of Ghost the Samurai of games. Ghosts of Tsushima. Ghosts of Tsushima, yes. Uh, so they're currently working on that. So Sucker Punch is still around, and I think one of Sony's biggest second-party developers right now, mm-hmm. um, for sure. There was, however, an HD pack, uh, developed by Sanzaru Games that came out in uh, 2010, five years after the release of Sly 3. Unfortunately, and I don't know how you managed to find, like, you got so lucky and didn't hit this point. I didn't have this problem. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, Sly 2 and Sly 3 uh, work fine. Sly 1, for the most part, works fine except for the fact that the best boss fight in sly one is broken and i have no idea how this didn't occur to you uh because it's occurred to me on on physical on digital on ben's digital the b mask video actually like comments on it that it was a well-known issue they just never fixed it uh the the boss fight that i'm talking about in sly one is with ms ruby uh it is a rhythm-based boss fight one of the cooler boss fights in the game the cool, the cool boss fight in the game. All the other bosses aren't great. 
Uh, I'll, I'll say it. I love these games. I'll say it. The music desyncs. And it's so frustrating. Maybe I just got good and picked up on it visually as opposed to not listening to the music anymore. I don't, I don't know. I, I can't remember. You're the only person I know that didn't run into the issue. It's bizarre to me. But I'm glad you didn't because that boss is amazing. Uh, but yeah, the Sly Collection overall, though, like if you're looking to play this series, it's, it's worth the money. Go ahead and buy it. Uh, it's a good over outside of that one problem. It's a good uh, HD collection to, to pick up. It's like 30 bucks max if it's not on sale. Oh, yeah, it's you can get it for pretty cheap. And then in 2013, Sanzaru also released a brand new game in the series, Sly Cooper Thieves in Time, but the series has been mostly silent since then, except there is allegedly a movie in production. (laughs) This movie was announced in 2014 uh, with a short teaser trailer, and we have not heard a goddamn thing about this since then. My roommate checks the Twitter at least, like, once every couple months, and they apparently have not tweeted since, like, 2015. That movie is not actually happening. They've just never, like, publicly said so. There's another game with Sly Cooper in it that I'm surprised you didn't get to mention here. But when you talked about 2002 and how there were different uh, platforming characters, including (laughs) Ratchet and Clank and Jack and Daxter... And Sly Cooper coming out in the same year. PlayStation Move Heroes in 2011. It's a forgettable game. See, that's not the game I thought you were talking about because I forgot that game existed until you just mentioned it. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Had all three of those characters in there. Uh, Ratchet and Clank, Jack and Daxter, and Sly and Bentley. PlayStation Move. (laughs) That sure was a game that existed. Uh, Sly also shows up in PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale, which is the game I thought you were going to mention. That game too, 2012, yep. So, yeah, that was a weird year for Sly to show up a bunch of times. I'm pretty sure it was just because Sly 4 was on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Um, But like I said, series has been silent since then. I know a lot of people don't like Thieves in Time, I guess. I liked it all right. I thought it was a good game. And there was a cliffhanger tease. Yeah, there's a cliffhanger tease, and I think it's like it's my least favorite game in the series for sure. Uh, it's down at the bottom, uh, but I still like it just fine. Yeah, yeah. And then like I wait every year for Sony to tell me a Sly Five is coming, and every year I am disappointed because they're never going to make a Sly Five, <laughs> and I just have to live with it. Anyways, the music of the Sly Cooper series. Uh, overall, except for uh, for the first game, was done by Peter McConnell. Now, Peter McConnell is a big name in game music. Uh, something I didn't know until very recently. In the recent, like, last few years, I didn't realize how big a deal this guy was. And let me get into why. So he was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1960. We don't know when. I believe he's kept his actual birth date. Uh, he's... He's never really brought it up, which, eh, that's fine. Uh, he also goes by simply Peter Mick. Sure. Uh, so he studied at Harvard University in the 80s, and uh, there he befriended a man named Michael Land. Now, he and Michael Land would go on to land jobs, <laughs> mm. land jobs, at LucasArts. 
where he would begin his career on the Monkey Island series, as well as working on various Star Wars and Indiana Jones games. He would also uh, co-invent, alongside Land, the iMuse system, which I guess was a system that LucasArts developed to synchronize game music with on-screen events and also be able to transition from piece to piece seamlessly, uh, mostly for their point-and-click adventures and stuff like that that they were making at that time. While at LucasArts, he also worked very closely with and befriended Tim Schafer, who still works in games today a lot, uh, and worked with him on multiple games, which would lead Schafer to eventually approach him later in life after founding Double Fine to do a bunch of their games, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, He left LucasArts in the year 2000, uh, so dodged a bit of a bullet there when they were I was going to make the joke of like, and then so did everybody else. Uh, <laughs> a sad bunch of years later. Because um, as as people might know, LucasArts is no longer there. Uh, when Disney acquired the Star Wars license, I believe they just completely dismantled the studio, if I remember correctly. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah, so that it's it's been a few years since then. But yeah, unfortunate. He did continue to contribute to some LucasArts games after he left the company, though. Uh, And he is, I told you this would come back up, listener, he is one of the founding members of G-A-N-G, the Game Audio Network Guild, which is an organization meant to be, quote, a global audio community without borders, without limits, and without exclusion. So basically, it, it seems to be a group devoted to helping people that work in video game music and sound uh, solve issues in their field, keep in contact with their peers. It's kind of, it almost sounds like a union, but I don't think it is, uh, per se, a union. Probably just more like, yeah, a professional group. Uh, yeah, they give out awards like to Red Dead Redemption. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which I didn't actually realize that came up in your research until you brought it up. That's a really cool connection, honestly. Because mm-hmm. how on earth have we gone this far and this is the first time I've ever heard of this organization. <laughs> I feel like I've seen the acronym floating around before, but never really through our research. Maybe just you know, other points in the past. I don't know. Like, this is 41 episodes, and this is the first time we've heard of this group. Yeah. So, yeah. as for his discography, uh, he's worked on a lot of games. Uh, in the Monkey Island series, he is the composer for Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge, Escape from Monkey Island, and he also contributed to The Secret of Monkey Island Special Edition. Uh, He did the music for Indiana Jones and The Fate of Atlantis. For various Star Wars games, including, and this isn't all of them because I only listed the ones that I recognize, uh, the X-Wing series, Rebel Assault and Rebel Assault 2, TIE Fighter, Shadows of the Empire, Yoda Stories, X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter, Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2, Episode 1 Racer, Rogue Squadron 2, and Battlefront. He did the music for Sam and Max Hit the Road, Day of the Tentacle, Full Throttle, Grim Fandango, which is probably his most famous, uh, like, soundtrack by far. Yeah, it is. Uh, So there are probably at least some people angry at me that I brought up Peter McConnell, but not for Grim Fandango. And don't worry, I'm mad at me too. We will talk about Grim Fandango one of these days. Yeah. Uh, It's just... There's gonna, that's going to be a repeat one day. Uh, he, of course, did the music for Sly 2, Sly 3, and Sly Cooper Thieves in Time. 
He was the composer for Psychonauts and is coming back for Psychonauts 2, Brutal Legend, Costume Quest and Costume Quest 2, Connectimals, <laughs> if you remember that. So he, you know, when we when we were seeing Skittles, he was doing the music for Skittles. It's Rajan's little little kid. <laughs> what a game to have on your lip. Wow. Uh Plants vs. Zombies 2 and Plants vs. Zombies Garden Warfare, which means that he's the one that took over for Laura Shigihara after she left PopCap. That's really an interesting connection. Uh, Hearthstone. I had no idea he was the composer for Hearthstone. Wow. Which, that's a big name that is currently very relevant Mm. for reasons Blizzard probably doesn't want. Uh, and he was also the composer for Broken Age. So he's done a lot of games. He's big. So as for uh, actual development of the soundtrack, there's not a lot, unfortunately, because the the it's kind of a double-edged sword when you're covering a composer that's done so much, because then you're like, all right, can I find a an interview about this specific game? No. No, I can't. <laughs> Searching Peter McConnell interview is going to get you so much stuff you don't need to know. But uh, I did find a few things. Uh, again, this was his first work on the series. Before this, in Sly 1, the uh, music was actually done by Ashif Hakik, whom I am sure I will bring up on the show at some point. Uh, but he became the composer for the, the series from here. Uh, it makes heavy use of leitmotif in the same way that Red Dead Redemption's soundtrack does, actually where it has a small little melody that you can hear in almost every song in the game, the da-na-na-da-na. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. That's like in all of them. And it's never been released officially, ever. In fact, the only soundtrack in the entire Sly Cooper series that has ever been officially released is Sly 4. <laughs> That's it. Uh, so this is the second one in a row where these are just what the internet calls them, and also... It's a good thing Peter McConnell was the only one on this soundtrack because we wouldn't be able to credit specific composers with specific songs if he wasn't. And he also, unsurprisingly, says that a large uh, inspiration for both this and the score of Sly 3 were the works of Henry Mancini, which checks out 100%. So let's get in to those five critical tracks. First one is Museum. This is actually the first song the player hears in the entire game uh, upon loading it up. It is a very kind of subdued and sneaky piece, except for at a certain point when it does do that sort of build up. Uh, but then it goes right back to being sneaky uh, because this is the song that plays when Sly and the gang are infiltrating the museum in Cairo. Uh, and I think it's the perfect introduction to the new world and play style of Sly Cooper. It's great. Yeah, definitely one that deserved to be here. You're right. Like very... Very sneaky like this. Uh, yeah, yeah, good good vibes with this one. And I just hope that Sly and the gang get to go back to Egypt. Mm-hmm. 
that would be that would be fun. And also, they kind of have to if they make Sly Five. <laughs> they don't have a choice. Speaking of, hope they get to go back. Uh, the next song on the Critical Five is Paris Rooftops. So one of the uh, reasons I've heard for why Paris is the first level in Sly 2 is because people played the short little Paris section at the beginning of Sly 1, where you're just breaking into the police station, and then you leave immediately, and thought, well, I want to explore Paris, though. And so Sucker Punch was like, all right, level one, Paris. And that's where this music plays. Uh, this music is so French. That's one of the things that Peter McConnell does really well with the Sly Cooper music, is that it's a globe-trotting adventure, all of them. Uh, you're going to different countries, like in, in this game, you go from France to India to Prague to Canada, uh, and it's just such a, a diverse mix of cultures and the instrumentation you would hear there. So like here, you've got the accordion, you've got this really nice bass part that I really, really like. I don't know. This is probably one of my favorite, like, walking around songs in the game. Oh, gosh, absolutely. Like, it's not the best song in the game. We'll get to talking about that very soon. It's not the best song in Paris. <laughs> but you're right. For the open world jungle gym like map, this is not only the most recognizable, but the best song in the game, I think, by far. Uh, it's mm -hmm. one where like, yeah, I'm going through these songs again and I'm like, yeah, this is definitively this game without question. I, when I was like listening to a, cause you, you send me the clips before we record yeah. so that I can be like, well, if I, if, if you need to change anything, I'll let you know. I listened to the clip. And I was like, this is, this is the main menu song though. And I was like, wait. No, it's not. <laughs> this is that like that's how ingrained into this game this song is for me. Yes. That I heard it and immediately just thought, but this is like the main menu theme that you hear all the time. Uh it's a great song. It's just that much of an earworm for sure. But the best song in Paris, by far, and probably the best song in the game, let's be real, is Nightclub. Specifically the Lounge Lizard mix. Show your bling and let me shine you. It is literally impossible to talk about this game without mentioning this song. This is the most well-known song in the entire series, somehow. <laughs> what am I? What do I mean somehow? This is this song is great. 
Uh, this song plays in Dimitri's nightclub. Uh, there are actually two versions of this song in the game, one without the voice clips and one with the voice clip. Uh, obviously, I picked the important one, which is well, the one with the voice clips, because now, 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 this is the most important song in video games. It is. It, it, <laughs> it really is. Um, like, if you're hearing this song for the first time, even still, I apologize because like a 30 second clip does not do this song justice. Like you're missing the whole minute almost where the instrumentation drops out and it's just line after line from Dimitri. It's so good. Him saying the most random stuff. And so I think to probably could just play it for you. Right. But I think to properly emulate it, Joe and I must act it out here for you. Hell yeah, we should. <laughs> Keep it smooth, baby. Walk tall, stand tall, feel funky. Juice? Who's got the juice? Get the kinetic, kinetic aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love him so much. He's so good. He is the best villain in all of the se- in the entire series by far. Uh, I I put him higher than Clockwork, which is weird. Uh, but like when I think Sly Cooper villains, I think Dimitri. He's one of the villains that comes back as a party member mm-hmm. in Sly Three. That's how important he is. He even gets a cameo appearance in Sly Four. He doesn't talk, which ruins that but like he does appear briefly in sly 4 he's the only one uh for people wondering you guys keep mentioning dimitri you haven't like told us who the hell this guy is uh dimitri is the first member of the claw gang that you take on in the game he is a failed artist who tried to uh make it in the paris art scene but found the art community to be thoroughly unimpressed with his work so out of spite he decided that he was going to instead jump into the realm of selling art forgeries. And then he also jumped into the nightclub industry where he runs the most popular nightclub in Paris. And the Cooper gang must steal the clockwork tail feathers from him because he is using them as printing plates for counterfeit bills. Uh, and he is most well known, uh, as you might have guessed, for his interesting method of speaking. And in most games, like, that would just be, oh, they made a so random character that speaks like that. But no, he actually has a canon reason for why he talks that way. Uh, he English is his second language. He learned it as a kid by watching pop music videos. So he talks like a pop music video. <laughs> uh, he's, he's the most memorable villain in the entire Sly Cooper series, like, by far. Which is saying something, because a lot of the villains in Sly Cooper are really good. It is one of those things where I feel like almost whether you decided this or I'm just assuming this on you, like, we're bringing up this game only to talk about this song. (laughs) Almost. Almost. Uh, Like, this song makes it worth it to talk about just in general. Uh, But our next track... To, to pull us away from our, our lovely our lovely lounge lizard is Operation Hippodrop. 
So I actually bounced between this and one of the songs on my cutting room floor, but to be honest, I think this is the more memorable of the two. Uh, this theme actually plays during the heist in Chapter 2, which takes place in India. Uh, I kind of actually kind of consider this Bentley's theme. Mm-hmm. Because when you hear this during that heist, uh, it's always while Bentley is doing something. Like, you first hear it when Bentley is bombing the bridge. Uh, and then you hear it again when Bentley is piloting his uh, RC helicopter. Uh, which is sure a thing that happens in that game. Uh, <laughs> boy, those parts are bad. I don't like them. Uh, and this is while you're trying to steal the clockwork wings from Rajan who is the second Claw Gang member that you actually uh, meet and take on. He's a criminal mastermind who has made a name for himself in the illegal spice trade. And because he grew up as a poor, like, quote-unquote, street rat on the streets of India, where being poor is, argue like, that part of the world, being poor in countries like that is kind of, like, not great. Go read up on the caste system. Yeah, being poor anywhere sucks, but being poor in a country that uses the caste system is especially not fun. Uh, and so, because he made himself rich through these uh, illicit main, like illicit means, he kind of has this thing where he's overcompensating for like the fact that he's rich now. Like, hey, look at me, I'm not poor anymore. Um, and they actually have to steal two uh, clockwork parts from Rajan because he is in uh possession of the clockwork wings which he's just using as ornaments like he just puts them on a freaking statue uh but he is also in possession of the clockwork heart which he's using as a pump for his spice growing operation he's a great villain uh this song is fun uh it sounds kind of like an old an older military game almost <laughs> if that makes sense mm-hmm. that's what it always reminded me yeah. of yeah but then my actual favorite song in the game, uh, not counting Dimitri's Nightclub, obviously, is our fifth critical track, Canadian Wilderness Fight. banjos in video game music banjos are cool i like banjos and piano and other instruments jazz i don't know if yeah i don't know if banjos and jazz go together but well, can make it work i mean if i've learned anything it's that anything can go together if you really try <laughs> hard enough <laughs> uh but yeah this plays when you get in a fight in the first canadian wilderness chapter of which there are two uh, you go to Canada to face off against Jean Bisson, who is actually the fourth Claw Gang member that you take on. Uh, he has a fun backstory, being that he was a prospector who was buried and frozen in an avalanche in 1852 during the gold rush, and that he thawed out thanks to global warming in present-day Canada. Uh, and he, his big thing, is that he doesn't really believe in, uh, you know, things like environmental preservation or stopping global warming 
and he just wants to cut down all the trees and dam all the rivers for profit, or as he puts it, to tame the wild. Uh, And the Cooper gang actually has to steal four clockwork items from him, being uh, three of his organs. I think it's like the the liver and I don't even remember the stomach. And I don't remember the last one. Mm, I can't remember either. Uh, it's it's three different organs, though. They're like his internal organs. And they also have to steal the clockwork talons from him, which he is using as a sweet axe. Like, I, I as a kid, I saw that axe and I was like, that's so cool, though. Uh, he's using the organs to power trains, by the way. All of them have great uses for these robotic owls' body parts. It's super weird. But yeah, I... Love this song. It's just... Mmm. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. It's the banjo. The banjo is so cool, and it fits this position... It, or it fits this area so well. And it's another example of, like, could you... If I played Paris Rooftops and then this song back-to-back, would you say, yeah, those are from the same video game? Oh, yeah, absolutely not. Like, it's just so, and yet they still feel like they fit together in the same video game somehow against all odds. I love it. It's a good song. So for tracks on the cutting room floor, uh, you actually have two. And by you have two, I mean I suggested two. And <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you kind of hit on all the big ones I love. And I uh, just want to be a good friend and help you, uh, <laughs> you know, prop up this OST a little more. Uh, just you know, give us some more love. But they are good songs, and so I have no problem bringing them to the floor, so to speak. Uh, The first one being Pursuing Neela. Constable Neela is a Character with questionable motives. Uh, I guess you're, you're following her in during this mission. She's usually going to guide you to some place where you can, you know, she'll help you bend the law a little bit, probably to uh, Carmelita Fox's dismay. At one of the first things she says to you uh, when you meet her for the second time is, I have this key to this nightclub, and technically I can't go in without a warrant, but you... Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, as a, as a player, you're like, oh, sweet, finally. Cool, that's awesome. Uh, and later on, you're just like, huh, maybe that was too easy because it was too easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fun piece of trivia, though, that I learned from uh, B-Mask's video is that according to design documents, Neela was originally supposed to be Rajan's daughter. Hmm. Uh, which makes a lot of sense. She's a tiger. She was born in New Delhi. Uh, so it's it's kind of weird that like she goes to India and then never brings it up. <laughs> I, I do wonder why it was cut. That, that was certainly interesting. Second one here is Cabin. This one plays on the uh, the train, the cabin levels. It's, it's still in Canada, uh, and you can kind of tell because there's 
or that guitar, you know, the banjo, especially the, the slide guitar in particular. Uh, just mm-hmm. that, that really specific sound. So, yeah, it kind of matches up. Uh, that makes sense. You know, more, more good music like this kind of pairing along with the Canada section of the world. Mm-hmm. And I mostly remember this song because the train heists are cool. They're probably some of the coolest parts of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the main reason why I want to go replay this. Like, I want to go replay this right now and I don't have time. Oh, God, yeah. My two, uh, the first being Dance with Carmelita. So this plays uh, during Operation Hippodrop, which is when Sly has to dance the tango with Carmelita in order to distract the crowd, while Murray, up above, lowers down on a winch and grabs the clockwork wings and then leaves. Uh, and it's just this wonderful tango rendition of the Sly Cooper theme. I absolutely adore this song and this part. It's such a good cutscene. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, you definitely hear some of like the da 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 da, or uh, the da 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 da, like little little Sly Cooper light motifs here. They're definitely all over the place, but I think it also definitely takes inspiration from Habanera, from Carmen. Um, the da dun 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 da dun 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 da dun da. A little bit, yeah, I could hear that, but it's 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 Carmelita. Granted, she mm. may not have. <laughs> The accent, (laughs) but it's intended to be there. And my other Cutting Room Floor track is Operation Thunderbeak. This is the one I was kind of tossing around. This or Operation Hippodrop. Didn't really know which one to do. I think it came down to, again, Hippodrop is a little bit more memorable to me. And also, like, that would have been three songs from Paris. <laughs> um, and even then, I have to draw a line for myself at some point. Uh, this song, though, feels super heisty. And it should, because it's the song from the first heist in the game. Uh, it's, I don't know, something about it just feels like yeah oh yeah we're doing this it's got like a rhythm and a pace to it that really feel like it's all coming together let's do it i think it's the woodwinds the woodwinds really uh make it for me so what will i never forget about sly 2 uh the villains the fact that it was one of the first games that i ever like bought based on an advertisement uh ads don't work on me anymore but they did when I was a child. So there's that, I guess. But yeah, it's I like the villains. Sly Cooper as a series has fantastic villains. Like, just all the way through. Uh, especially because it always builds them up as... as it, it gives them backstory before you've even met them, basically. Uh, and not a lot of other series do that. Where, like, it's also hard because, you know, Sly is a criminal. And you have to, like, frame it in a way that's like, but these, 
This criminal's worse, though. Please trust us. Like, Sly's a good guy, but he's still a criminal. <laughs> like, the Cooper gang are breaking the law. They're not the good guys, uh, but they are, you know, the good guys. And I don't know. I just, I really love the Sly Cooper series, and I, I think it's high time I just go replay all of them. It's a good idea. Good idea. Uh, if you go to a Google tab right now, just, you know, just start a Google search. And if you type kinetic aesthetic, oh no, you'll, you'll realize that the first autofill right there in, in the bar on Chrome or wherever Dimitri baby is kinetic aesthetic Dimitri. Like it's, it's a thing. So I will never forget Dimitri. I will never forget his song and the kinetic aesthetic. It's a good thing to hold on to. (laughs) Gangs of Outlaws. Two great games to talk about this. Again, you look at the thumbnail in the YouTube video and it's like, those art styles kind of work surprisingly well together. Well, it turns out the themes work well together. So I learned a lot this week. Hopefully you all did too. So that will do it for us this week on Original Sound Chat. You can find me on Twitter at Pete Speakeasy. Joe is over at The Dobaga. The video version of the show is on the Rhymes with Asia YouTube channel, also at rhymeswithasia.com. But it's that MP3 podcast version that you want over at Anonymous Dinosaur at anondino.squarespace.com. Easiest way to get it, though, MP3 podcast versions, stores, podcast storefronts, all around the globe. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, you know, just download it there, subscribe, take it with you in your car, on a run, at work, just listen to great conversations about video game soundtracks, and we won't tell your boss. It's okay. Uh, but you can also follow us on social media, at Soundchat OST. Interact with us there, and uh, give us feedback on these episodes, and leave us suggestions for games that you'd like us to cover. The Spotify playlist has been a fixture in my car for the last several weeks, and hopefully <laughs> it should be for yours as well. Uh, but for new additions, uh, any any new tracks being added to the big original Soundchat Spotify playlist? So I haven't checked to make sure that all of the Critical Five are there, uh, but Red Dead Redemption appears to be on Spotify. Sly 2, though, as I said, never been released officially, so it is not. Yeah, these were all pulled from the official soundtrack release from Red Dead Redemption. So it should be all there, I would imagine so. Um, yeah, hopefully November won't be killing us, so hopefully we can contribute more to that bonus tracks collection there. So we've got something coming up there, hopefully. And also for our Thanksgiving slash Black Friday week, uh, we're doing a special episode where, you know, because it's the holiday season, you know, Thanksgiving is a crazy time for the United States. Uh you know, for Black Friday especially, go out and buy and enjoy games. But in the meantime, we're looking to take your Q&A. So if you'd like to ask us any questions that we could use for that episode where we're just going to chill and have a conversation and answer your questions, again, please uh, feel free to interact on social media there at Soundchat OST. We'd love to get your questions, and we're already building some questions there. Uh, so that should be, should be great. Joe, who are we talking about next week? I will be talking about Hiroki Hashimoto. I will be talking about Junichi Masuda. Oh, that's right. We're we're getting to that Ooh. release on the calendar. So that should be fun. Let's play us out. So obviously there was no other song. 
First of all, I don't think I would have been able to find a remix of a different song from this game. But second of all, even if I could, why would I not pick a remix of this song? Uh, it's Dimitri's. Dimitri's Nightclub. Uh, I found a remix of uh, Dimitri's Nightclub by YouTuber Nekyo, N-E-C-Y-O. So please enjoy that and keep it greasy, Swede. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening this week on Original Sound Chat. We'll see you next time. Take care.